Hello and welcome to The Progress Theory, where we discuss how to implement scientific principles for optimising human performance. I am Dr Phil Price and on today's episode we are joined by Dr Kenji Doma, Senior Lecturer in Sport and Exercise Science at James Cook University in Australia. Now when people think about the interference effect from hybrid training, they think more about how endurance training negatively influences the strength and hypertrophy adaptations from the strength training. Now, there's a lot of research supporting the use of strength training to improve endurance performance, but there are a few examples of how strength training can negatively influence endurance performance. In this episode, Kenji and I discuss the mechanisms behind how strength training could negatively influence endurance performance, how we program to avoid this, and the common mistakes people make when hybrid training. But before we get into the episode, I just want to tell you a little bit about our sponsors because without them, this podcast would not be possible. I wanted to express my gratitude to my production partner, Cult Media. Cult Media has been instrumental in the development and success of the Progress Theory. They have created brand guides, comprehensive podcast strategies, enhanced the podcast production, developed custom workflows for me, and edited and mixed all of the video, audio, and social media content. Cult Media's simple coach, create, and collaborate process has saved me hundreds of hours in podcast production, resolved countless technical issues, and consistently helped me to improve my podcasting game. So if you want to establish and engage your audience, or are ready to launch your own podcast, head to www.cult.media, that's cult with a K, to learn more. Also, thank you to Human24, fueling human potential and optimizing everyday human performance and well-being. The supplement range at Human24 not only helps improve your lifestyle, it optimizes it. The Human24 products are designed to fit around your circadian rhythms from the moment you wake up to key moments in the day when you need optimal focus to getting the best night's sleep. There is a product to optimize each phase of the day. My personal favorite is the Live On Form Pack, consisting of the products Rise, Flow, and Pre-Sleep. Rise is for the morning, and it's my absolute favorite. It's a drink that tastes amazing, it hydrates me, and improves my focus to win the morning. At 2 p.m., I take Flow, which is a caffeine-free nootropic, perfect for improving alertness and concentration during that mid-afternoon slump. And finally, I take pre-sleep just before bed, which is a comprehensive nighttime complex, perfect to support a performance-driven lifestyle. Check out the website www.hmn24.com for all their products, articles, and links to their awesome podcast for those wanting to learn more about human performance. You can even check out the episode I did with them. I thoroughly enjoyed my chat with Phil Lerney, co-founder of Human24, and it has led to an awesome collaboration with Human24 supporting the progress theory. If you want a 10% discount on all Human24 products, head to their website via the links in our Instagram bios of the progress theory or my personal Instagram account at DrPhilPrice or use the code PhilPrice at checkout. As always, follow The Progress Theory on Instagram and YouTube and check out all of our other episodes. Here is Dr. Kenji Doma. Kenji, how are we? Good, man. How are you, Phil? Yeah, very good. Thank you so much for coming on to The Progress Theory. Really looking forward to this particular episode because the more I read into concurrent training and the interference effect... A lot of it seems to be geared towards, oh, something might be affect our ability to recover from resistance training. Uh, there isn't as much talking about, actually, our resistance training could affect our endurance performance, which is where your research comes in. So I think you offer a really different perspective on anything, on everything. So I'm mm. really looking forward to it. Yeah. So do you want to, before we get into the, the science of it all, do you want to give a bit of an overview of yourself and maybe a little bit into why you decided to look at this side of concurrent training. Sure. So um, I did my PhD a couple of years ago. When I did my PhD, obviously my supervisor, being an endurance athlete and having a strong triathlon background, he did his PhD in concurrent training. And um, when I actually started my research activity, 
So we did, I don't know if you guys have honors over there, honors program in England. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Uh, but in Australia, when you finish your bachelor's degree, you do your honors. Um, and the honors is just a year of research and it gives you a taste of what it's like to conduct research. Okay. I, that's when I actually started uh, delving more into strength and conditioning. So I, I guess my background is more strength and conditioning with a focus in concurrent training and, you know, really trying to understand the compatibility of resistance and endurance training when they are prescribed in one training program, which a lot of athletes have to deal with. But yeah, when I did my honors, I was more in purely into resistance training. So in my honors, we compare, I compare the biomechanics of chin-ups and lap pull and exercises. And so it was very much of a biomechanical uh, perspective towards research and strength and conditioning. And then when I complete my honors, you know, I was talking to my supervisor. My supervisor was more of a focus on the impact of concurrent training on endurance forms, given that he was an endurance athlete himself, or he still is. And so he, I guess he was suggesting that I expand on his work. So he focused on the impact of resistance training on cycling performance. So he conducted about three studies looking at various types of resistance training, the different various modes of resistance training, uh, manipulating the resistance training variables, and all those, uh, I guess, factors combined and how that then affects cycling performance from an acute perspective. And then from there onwards, uh, you know, after he suggested that I could expand on the work, but rather than looking at cycling, maybe I could look, look at running. Okay. So, and running, obviously, mm. as you know, is quite a uh, common mode of endurance exercise. It's not just runners who undertake endurance uh, running. It's, you know, all types of athletes. So I saw quite a bit of application and potential for conducting research in concurrent training, looking at the impact or looking at the acute effects of resistance training on running performance specifically. And then from there, kind of really delving into the manipulation of resistance training variables on endurance performance and also manipulating the training variables of endurance. So, you know, looking at low intensity versus high intensity, mm -hmm. changing volume, altering the recovery periods between resistance and endurance training, ultimately conducting a PhD, trying to understand either if you think of it more of an antagonistic uh, effect of resistance or endurance training or the compatibility between resistance and say running performance. I did that for about, I did my PhD for about four years. I had three studies with the first study looking at the acute effect of various resistance training intensity and volume on running performance uh, immediately, immediately post a six hours post. And whilst equating for work between the various modes, so various types of resistance training sessions. And then I guess from there, we went into the second study looking at resistance training order. So if you were to alter resistance and endurance training order, how does that then affect running performance, say six hours post? So if you were to do uh, resistance training in the morning, running session in the afternoon, how does that affect running performance the next day and vice versa? And then, and then my final study is looking at the microcycle of resistance and endurance training. So if you were to undertake a traditional form of resistance training, so I think I had two resistance training sessions during that week, typically more of a common endurance training microcycle where they're doing moderate high-intensity running sessions on a daily basis combined with resistance training. One, if there is an accumulation effect of fatigue uh, during that period of microcycle, and whether that magnitude of the accumulation effect of fatigue from one training session to the next actually affects running performance. Now, when I say running performance, my, my, I guess my main outcome measures were running economy and running time to exhaustion. And the majority of my studies involve moderate to train runners. So it was pretty much specific to runners. Most of them were either resistance trained or have been through a washout period where I'll get them to undertake two to three resistance training sessions before they actually start their experimental session to minimize the, uh, I guess, the repeated bad effect. So, so yeah, that's, I guess, kind of like, like my background in terms of why I went, or, like why I went into delving into concurrent training and 
very basically what I did in my PhD. Mm. There's a really nice progression to your PhD. You can really see the sort of acute effects of potential interference effects on endurance performance within like all of the exercise or all of the sessions, particularly on a day. And then it's sort of spread out to more of a microcycle and looking about accumulative fatigue and how that can affect the interference effect on endurance performance long term. So I can, yeah, I can really see that nice progression of your PhD. It seems in more of the like training space, there are still some predispositions around what the interference effect is. And there's an element of, oh, you never put those together because they literally cancel each other out. That's what they're thinking what the interference effects is doing. But yeah. it's clearly more nuanced than that. I mean, there's still a lot of more questions from the literature that we need to ask, but there's still <laughs> there's still a lot that's information that's out there. To get started on trying to figure out what actually affects endurance performance, what kind of mechanisms do you think are at play that could potentially impair endurance performance during a concurrent training program? Yeah, see, that's that's a, one of the key questions that I have to ask myself during the course of my PhD. I guess some of the information is sourced from the paper scoping or narrative review paper that I published in Sports Medicine. Um, so if, and if the listeners want to get more information from that, they're more than welcome to kind of read that paper. One of the main mechanisms is impaired neuro recruitment patterns, so neuro fatigue. It's been suggested that when you undertake a bout of resistance training, it impairs muscle force generation capacity, such as maxillary contraction, uh, isometric or isokinetically. And there's potential either central or peripheral neuro fatigue that may come into play that minimizes the ability of the muscles to contract. You know, fundamentally, in order to perform or execute movement, your muscles have to contract, right? So, you know, your muscle muscle strength is the most important because without muscle strength, you need muscle strength to walk upstairs. You need muscle strength. If you've been bedridden for six months, you try to walk upstairs, you have difficulty walking upstairs because of impaired motor uh, recruitment pattern, motor control, and more important, impaired muscular strength. Same deal. You know, when you undertake, when you run, you obviously it's an endurance exercise, you still need muscle, basically you need muscular strength. So if you undertake resistance training, you experience reduction in the ability of the muscles to contract. Of course, there's a plethora of reasons why muscles are not able to contract optimally. One of the main reasons, again, like I said, is uh, neuro fatigue or neuromuscular fatigue. I guess the other aspect is the changes in neuro recruitment pattern. So it's been suggested that when you undertake muscle damaging exercises, uh, there's an increased susceptibility of the type 2 muscle fibers to be damaged over the type 1. So what happens is that then alters optimal neuro recruitment patterns during running or submaximal activity. And the alterations in that neuro recruitment pattern actually increases the energy cost of exercise. So you're not able to recruit the right type of muscle fibers based on the type or intensity of exercise you're, you're undertaking. I guess the other component is muscle soreness, so delayed onset of muscle soreness. So when you undertake resistance exercise, there's a great chance that you're going to be experiencing DOMS. I think we've all been there uh, before. And it's not just resistance training that induces DOMS. There's obviously various modes of exercises, but particularly it's the eccentric component of the exercise that increases the susceptibility to experiencing DOMS. And it's been shown that when you're experiencing DOMS, the perceptual component of DOMS alters the kinesthetic awareness. So that kinesthetic uh, mechanoreceptive feedback may alter running gait. So if you're feeling sore, you know you might change the strategies in the way in which you run. When you change the strategies in the way in which you run, you might not be running optimally. So when you're not running optimally, that might increase the oxygen cost or energy cost. It's no different to a car. You know, if you got a car that's really heavy or there's gears or parts in the car that's not working optimally, then it's not efficient. So you're going to be using more fuel out of that car to cover a particular distance or maintain speed. It's the same concept when you undertake injurious activity. 
particularly at the sub-maximal level, so we're talking below or around hovering around the anaerobic threshold, is that you become inefficient, you're expending more energy or your oxygen cost goes up, and therefore you're not able to maintain a particular pace during your running sessions, uh, you're not able to cover particular distances. And so, yeah, so I guess that's one aspect. DOMS is a big factor. DOMS is a very common symptom following resistance training. It's also been shown that when you experience DOMS, it's one of the reasons why you're experiencing DOMS is the activation of what's known as a group three and four afferent nerve fibers. And what's been shown is that the group three and four afferent nerve fiber activation may also modulate uh, the ventilatory responses. So we've got the group three and four afferents that may be surrounding the working muscles uh, that is causing DOMS. So it might be if you're doing a leg exercise or if you've undertaken a lower body resistance training session, you're experiencing a lot of DOMS in your legs. Group three or four efferents surrounding those working muscles actually modulates the uh, ventilatory response. And as a result of that, this may actually increase ventilation. And we've seen that as well. So there's plenty of studies that have shown that when you undertake uh, a running economy test, which is a type of uh, test where you get runners to run at a particular intensity, usually at submaximal intensity, so be below uh, lactate or anaerobic threshold, you actually see an increase in ventilation uh, using metabolic heart systems. And one of the potential reasons is because DOMS is causing that increase in respiratory rate. So I guess that's another potential reason. There's also this possibility that runners may be experiencing reduction in muscle glycogen, which is the energy stores, right? Mm. So, and, and there's actually evidence to suggest that uh, depending, of course, on the volume and workload of the resistance training sessions that you undertake, you can lose anywhere between 20 to 25% of your muscle glycogen from a resistance training session. So if you're already muscle glycogen depleted going into your running sessions, that might mean that the energy stores uh, that may typically be available to you may not be as available. And so your energy systems may tend to become more anaerobic. And so, you know, your, again, your oxygen cost goes up, uh, energy cost goes up, uh, or you're expending more energy to cover particular distances or running speeds. And, you know, you're kind of struggling to keep up with your running. So, yeah, there's a lot of reasons why a, just a single bout of resistance training may impair running economy. So when I say running performance, it's, I should probably say it's running economy. Uh, up to this point, a lot of the studies looking at the impact of resistance training really has focused on the economy of running. Now, there's more and more work that's being expanded upon from there, because I, I should probably take a step back. The reason why a lot of studies actually focus on running economy, as opposed to, say, VO2 max, is because there's also evidence to suggest that running economy is a better indicator of running performance. And so when we say running economy, it's actually not a performance per se, it's an indicator of running performance. So we, for example, if there's an impairment in running economy, you could be pretty confident and speculating that that might mean that runners will struggle to cover or uh, you know complete their normal running session because they have to expend greater energy, potentially expend more oxygen to cover particular work uh, during that running session. So that's why a lot of research looking at the impact of exercise-induced muscle damage, uh, which is a common symptom experienced from resistance training have looked at running economies for that reason. However, it's when you look at running economy and when you find that running economy is impaired, you can only speculate that that's going to impair running performance. It's only more recently, I'd say in the last decade or less, where people have actually kind of translated that to more running performance. So it might be time trial performance or time to exhaustion. Uh, maybe even sprint performance. So trying to replicate more of a sport activity, a change of direction, speed, agility. There's more and more studies actually looking at the impact of exercise-induced muscle damage, uh, which, like I said, is a common symptom of resistance training on these types of running performance measures. From my PhD, I looked at both. So we looked at running economy and running time to exhaustion. What I often found was that in depending on situations and the intensity of the resistance training or the volume of resistance training 
and the recovery period between resistance and endurance training. And I'm not going to go into that detail now because I presume Phil will want me to expand on that later on. But yes, I found situations where running economy was not changed at all. So we actually found no changes in running economy, which is quite surprising because it conflicted a lot of the findings from previous literature. However, we found changes in running time to exhaustion. So as the intensity of running went up, the runners actually started struggling. So that was an indication where, you know, had we not incorporated running time to exhaustion protocols, that would have fallen under the radar and we would not probably not have picked it up. So, so yeah, I guess, you know, there are several reasons uh, why resistance training may impair endurance performance. Um, the mechanisms that I brought forward probably does not only isolate to running performance. A lot of those mechanisms may also translate to other injurious modes of exercises, such as rowing. You know, rowing requires effective biomechanical movement patterns. So if there's impairment in neuro recruitment patterns as a result of resistance training going to rowing, you know, you can actually experience impaired efficiency in rowing mechanics. You can experience that with cycling. Um, and so, so yeah, so there's a, the, these mechanisms that I'm proposing really can be expanded and translated to other modes of endurance performance measures. That was really interesting what you said about the time to exhaustion thing. I mean, there's so much information that was great, all of those mechanisms. Mm-hmm. I've got so many questions. But the thing about the time to exhaustion uh, and the running economy issue, in your research, you found not much of a change in running economy. But once you got them to technically work maximally in their endurance performance, because you want them to run as for as long as possible, that's when they start to yeah. decrease in performance. So is yep. the session of endurance really quite important because if i did a resistance training session all these mechanisms could potentially affect my later endurance performance but only if that endurance session was say it was like a hot session it was one that i needed to really perform in whereas if it was a submaximal easy run it wouldn't actually make much difference i mean i know there's so many ifs and buts there but uh does the the session of mm-hmm. endurance itself play a big part massively and what we know uh, and this is not just based on my studies that i've conducted so far and continue to conduct studies on uh but it's also from other works as well i mean Ch- uh, ken nosaka's studies um trevor chen dean burt and he's from england as well so all they've actually indi- demonstrated that as the intensity of the running increases impairment in economy actually is increased as well. So they might, for example, they might find that the unaltered, so it's not changed, at 70% of your ventilatory threshold or lactate threshold. But when they bump it up to 90% of ventilatory threshold, so you're hovering around that lactate slash, or should I say anaerobic threshold more generically, that's when they find that oxygen cost goes up or that they might find that at 70% of anaerobic threshold, they see a significant increase. But the effect size might indicate that it's a moderate effect. But when they get bump it up to 90% or at anaerobic threshold, that's when they actually see yes, a significant increase in oxygen consumption and a substantially greater increase in oxygen costs as well. So as the intensity of running goes up, there's a greater chance that the stress induced by resistance training is going to affect running performance. So I've actually found that in my studies as well. Like I said, when you know we found no changes in running economy, but as soon as we got athletes to run at 110% of anaerobic threshold for as long as they could, which is the run to um, time to exhaustion trial protocol, you know, that's when they're unable to uh, maintain that time when they're say, 24, 48 hours after resistance training compared to baseline. And again, it comes down to changes in neural recruitment pattern. So as your running speed goes up, your neural recruitment patterns changes. And of course, you're going to rely more on those type 2 muscle fibers. But remember how early on I said that with muscle damaging exercises, type 2 muscle fibers are more susceptible to damage than type 1. So when you're trying to tap into those type 2 muscle fibers as your running intensity or speed goes up, that's when the neuro recruitment patterns are impaired. 
And so what, and as a result of that, your oxygen cost goes up. And of course, as your oxygen cost goes up, it means that you're expending more energy and you get tired easier. So if that makes sense. No, it makes complete sense. So what could we do to that resistance training session to try and reduce these negative impairments to the endurance performance? Go lighter Mm. and maybe do stuff in the gym where you're trying to reduce the chance of muscle soreness or any kind of DOMS so that wouldn't impair stuff, which then hopefully wouldn't increase the oxygen cost. Are Mm. there like certain factors we could manipulate to that strength session to try and reduce that chance of happening on the subsequent endurance session? Resistance training, especially for endurance athletes, I'm not saying that resistance training is bad for you. Of course not. You know, I highly recommend resistance training for all athletes, including long distance runners or long distance event endurance athletes. And there's even plenty of evidence to suggest that resistance training actually increases the economy of movement. And that's what you want. You know, you're becoming more efficient as your muscles are getting stronger. It goes back to what I was saying about any fundamental movements, you need muscular strength. So as your muscular strength goes up, you become more efficient, right? And so by implementing resistance training into your endurance training program, you expect that you get, a, I guess, an added benefit that you otherwise would not have had if you're only doing an endurance training. And there's evidence to suggest that. The issue is if you do not implement resistance training into your endurance training program logically and effectively, if there's any inappropriate prescription practice going on with your concurrent training, that's when you might see the possibility where the resistance training sessions are actually eating into the quality of your endurance session. So I guess the question is, what can you do, right? Well, like you said, Phil, I mean, you can minimize the load volume of your resistance training. And we know, and there's even evidence to suggest that if you increase your load volume, so as a total kilograms, so if you undertake, if you complete 20,000 kilograms of a resistance training session, as opposed to 10,000 kilograms of resistance training session, reps time sets times the amount of weight lifted. So if you were to calculate the loads. There's evidence to suggest that, you know, if you reduce the workload of your resistance training session, it induces lower levels of muscle damage. So if you have to translate that from a concurrent training uh, perspective, particularly for an endurance athlete, you know, it's more logical to reduce your workload in your resistance training, which will then minimize the impact on your subsequent endurance training session. Other possibilities is, if you have to incorporate resistance training session, that you avoid high-intensity endurance session a, a day or two after that resistance training session. But you don't want to incorporate resistance training at the cost of the quality of your endurance session. I think resistance training, especially for endurance athletes, should be treated as a supplementary to your endurance training, not vice versa. By all means, if you're a power athlete, strength athlete, Resistance training is the primary mode of exercise. You know, power training, resistance training, and you, you want to minimize endurance training because there's actually evidence, strong evidence to suggest that endurance training can actually impair strength development. And that's why there's been such strong focus of concurrent training with how endurance training actually compromises strength development and hypertrophic adaptations. So yes, if you're a power athlete, strength athlete, by all means, be wary of how you incorporate your endurance training session because you don't want the endurance training session to be impacting on your strength power sessions. But actually, that's kind of swapped around from the endurance athlete. Like I said, with the resistance training, it should be more treated as a supplementary to your endurance training session. If anything, if it's believed that if you've got a, an important microcycle where you're preparing for a race or my, microcycles as part of uh, periodization and you're getting closer to the race, and there's a possibility that squeezing in a resistance training session may impact on the quality of endurance training, I'd almost be inclined to say don't, don't include resistance training. Focus on endurance training during, just during those, those aspects, uh, those microcycles leading into your race, because at the end of the day, you don't want to compromise your endurance session just because you feel like you need to incorporate resistance training. You don't have to, you know? And you, you're still going to be able to 
you're not going to experience deep training from strength training just by not undertaking resistance training for a week or two. But what you don't want is to see a detraining in your injurious performance as a result of, you know, minimizing the workload of injurious training when you should actually be maintaining or increasing it. Obviously, there are several strategies that I can propose to minimize the impact of resistance training induced stress on endurance performance. But first and foremost, you have to kind of consider the timing of your periodization. So whereabout are you in terms of periodization leading it to peaking? So if it's your race that you're preparing for, and how important is your resistance training session leading into that race a couple of weeks prior to it? And also, what type of endurance training session are you going to incorporate immediately after or a day or two after that resistance training? So, for example, if you got a microcycle and you know the other potential, I guess, strategy that you could consider is applying some sort of a hierarchical approach to your endurance training during a microcycle. So you might have various types of endurance training sessions during that week that you perform that microcycle. And there might be certain endurance training sessions that are more important to you than others. For example, it might be pace running or it might be speed session. But then you might have more of a long, slow distance type run that you're not too concerned that you can actually you can actually complete the session even though you're experiencing residual effects of fatigue from us the previous strenuous training bout. Hmm. Leave that till the latter part of that week and make sure that you bring the more important endurance training session earlier in the week so that you are fully prepared going into that endurance training session and that you may then undertake that resistance training session after you've completed those more important endurance training sessions. I guess that's like probably the the easiest strategy to implement because that principle can work wherever you are at during your periodization cycle. But there's also evidence that suggests that, you know, manipulating the resistance training variables can impact on insurance performance. So like I said, workload is one. So we know that as you increase your workload uh, of your work volume um, of your resistance training, that is going to increase the susceptibility of training-induced stress going into your endurance training session, the quality of your endurance training session. So, for example, if you were to complete you know, four sets of squats, four sets of incline leg press, four sets of leg extension, four sets of leg curls, and finish off with lunges, that's a, quite a big work load volume of a lower body resistance training session. Now, if you've got a very important uh, endurance training session during that week, you wouldn't want to incorporate that the day after that type of resistance training session. You know, you're going to be wanting to complete your more important endurance training session early on the week leading into that resistance training session. And then you might have more of a recovery type endurance session the day or two after that resistance training session. So again, workload volume. If you're getting closer to peaking in your periodization, then what you'll probably do is you won't incorporate, you will not incorporate that type of resistance training session, but you might reduce substantially reduce the workload volume. So that might be that you reduce the actual load being lifted, or you might gradually slightly increase the volume, so rep range, or uh, you reduce the actual volume itself, but maintain the intensity, uh, particularly during the tapering period, for example. So you've dropped the volume, maintain the intensity. And you substantially drop the volume. So rather than doing three sets of each exercise, you might just do one set just to maintain the strength um, development or the, the uh, strength muscular strength properties um, so that that then can substantially minimize the potential carryover effects of fatigue going from resistance to endurance training. I guess the other aspect that to consider is the intensity of your endurance session. So like I said before, as your intensity of endurance training or endurance performance increases, the possibility of the carryover effects of training-induced stress from resistance training impacting on your performance increases as well. So drop the intensity of your endurance session following a strenuous resistance training bout, and that can potentially minimize the carryover effect of fatigue. I guess the other component to think that is the recovery period. Okay, so the greater the recovery period from your resistance to endurance training session, the less likelihood that it's going to have an impact. So if you, and by all means, really avoid those combined resistance endurance training sessions 
or the intra-session concurrent training, as you may call it, mm-hmm. because you are really going to be experiencing quite a bit of stress. So if you can imagine doing a resistance training session and then immediately follow that with a running session afterwards, your, your legs are not going to keep up. Even if you are to do resistance training in the morning and an endurance session in the afternoon, you might still not recover. Because we know that the impact of training inducers following a resistance training can last anywhere from 24 to 72 hours post, even if you're resistance trained. So that's not even accounting the possibility of the repeat about effect. So yeah, so there's there's several strategies that you can consider when you're incorporating resistance training into your endurance training program. And it's also based on the individual. So your training background can obviously have an impact on how on the level of uh, influence that resistance about the resistance training may have on subsequent endurance training sessions. It's probably more likely to think, and it's probably true to a certain extent, that the more trained you are, the less likelihood, less likelihood that an interference will occur. And there is a certain degree of truth to it, you know, especially with resistance training. The more resistance training you do, the less muscle damage you're going to experience because of the repeat about it. Your body naturally adapts. So it's it actually has a way in which it can tolerate resistance training better. And there's actually a lot of, there's quite a bit of evidence to demonstrate that too, both from a practical perspective, but also mechanistically from a scientific perspective. And, and we see it quite often, you know, you've got an uh, individual that's returning from the off season. A lot of these studies uh, will conduct uh, muscle damaging, um, uh, will incorporate muscle damaging protocols into their studies and then they'll specifically target resistance untrained individuals because they want to maximize that damaging effect. The issue with that, from a practical perspective, is that as soon as you complete that first training session, those findings may not translate to those individuals who are resistance trained already, right? But in my PhD, I specifically targeted those who are resistance trained, or I put the runners through a washout period where they have to undertake resistance training before the experimental session started. So I, I spent about you know three to four weeks before the actual experiment started. Well, they had to come in and complete three strenuous resistance training, identical resistance training bouts to the re- experimental sessions, just so that I could replicate those situations for runners who have already experienced resistance training. That said, though, there's, there are situations where you're going to have runners that are not as highly exposed to resistance training. One is, like I said, coming back from the off-season. So during the off-season, they may have very low volume intensity resistance training, or they may not be doing any resistance training at all. So when you get at injured athletes coming back from the off-season and going into the preseason, and you start implementing resistance training, that first resistance training session, they may experience quite a bit of muscle damage. Or you might have athletes that are returning from an injury. So they've been um, avoiding resistance training, strenuous resistance training, and as their um, injuries started to heal, um, and they're able to undertake more typical resistance training exercises, they may again experience high levels of muscle damage. So I guess those are more of the practical implications that of the findings of the uh, studies from looking at the impact of muscle damage on resistance on trained individuals. But more often than not, and I guess um, a lot of listeners who have a strong endurance background that also undertake resistance training, your level of muscle damage that you'll be experiencing will be nowhere near as those who are resistance untrained. So training background definitely has an impact. There's also evidence to suggest that those who are endurance trained, and we're talking resistance untrained individuals here, who are endurance trained actually are more protected from muscle damage than who are those who are completely untrained. So even those endurance athletes, because they undertake strenuous exercises, and we know, I mean, there's studies showing you know high levels of muscle damage following a long bout of running. So even after half marathon marathon, you know, you don't recover for a week. And muscle damage markers are quite high from you know a running event. Runners are experienced with to that type of stress then, you know, more often than not, they're going to be protected by, to a certain degree from uh, muscle damaging stress. But that said, though, if you're resistance untrained, even despite being an endurance athlete, and if you haven't done resistance training before, you can expect that your very first resistance training session, you're going to experience uh, sub, you know, substantially high level of muscle damage. 
which will then be ameliorated following the second resistance training bout thereafter. So training background would have an influence. And so it comes down to the individual, you know, and it's a bit of a trial and error, as I'm sure you understand, Phil. Might work for one athlete. It's not going to work for another athlete. Um, Mm. And so, you know, obviously the findings that you take out from these research, you can apply in terms of principles of exercise prescription, but, and then you take that on board and then you kind of trial it with your training to see if it works or not. I think that really nicely, no, no, that's that's fine. Because there's so many different factors that can have an effect here. So you need to take all of them into account. And sometimes, it's well, what about this? Well, what about this? Yeah. Then what about this? You know, taking all of that into account is yeah. really important. And like you said, it's it has to end up being trial and error because if you're, you're, you're trial and erroring to see what kind of different variables that you can manipulate as a coach if you're programming it's going to have a completely different effect on any different type of athlete so well let me push this see how they react exactly and it's play of trial and error and then you've got to sort of calculate or collect a lot of data over training weeks just to see how people not only react to individual variables but combination of variables within each endurance and that's resistance exactly training right. session so it becomes it becomes a maze but that's what's what's quite exciting about it to me i think one of the things that you also mentioned earlier which i thought was really interesting was the idea around fatigue and then how that plays into the endurance session so for mm. example what's mm. quite yeah, popular yeah, yeah. within the training space at the moment is they call it pre-fatigue. So on like a Friday, they might have a total body session where they're doing resistance training, but utilizing movements which have some sort of similarity to the movement that they're going to do in the endurance session the next day. So it could be lots of squats, lunges, all of those types of things. And the idea is that you're trying to develop a lot of localized fatigue in those movement patterns slash muscles that when you go to do your slow, easy, long run the next day, you are starting at a point where there will be some kind of impairment because of the fatigue. There will be some kind of increased cost. But they're taking the assumption that, say that you you were fresh and you did a three-hour run, you would start feeling fatigue and start seeing an increase in oxygen cost towards the end of the run, like the last half. The idea about pre-fatiguing is that you start that earlier on. So you could particularly get to that stage with less running volume for example i think that's what's mm. that's mm. what's developing at the moment and it just nicely tied into how you said about okay your long easy stuff towards the end and your more intense stuff at the beginning of the week because we are definitely seeing that within the training space so it's it's quite cool to see the the research nicely translate into what's happening in in the training space yeah yeah and you know i um i often discuss you know, my research with other scientists who actually do, who are injured athletes or who who are either injured athletes now or were injured athletes, mm. often their question was, well, why is it bad that you're experiencing stress during injured training? I mean, is that what you want? Mm. You know, for example, if you're running at a particular pace and you do resistance training the day before, you're coming in for your run and you turn it you know, run at a particular pace, you know, uh, for example, uh, you're running at a particular speed, okay? Or if you're running at a particular running speed or pace and your heart rate is higher than what it usually is. So you're sitting around at 150 beats per minute, but you've done your weight session the day before, you're struggling a bit, you're still able to maintain that running speed and you're still able to complete the session, but you write your heart rate signal around 160, 165 beats per minute. Okay. That's an indication of increased cardiovascular stress that you might not have experienced as much if you were feeling fresh. So I guess the question then is why is that bad? And I don't think it is. I think you know that has benefits. And, and there's a time and place for those that type of approach to um, you know, manipulating those concurrent training variables so that you're actually going in pre-fatigued and you are able to complete your endurance session at a greater cost, energy cost, because that's actually applying greater cardiometabolic stress to your body. And a greater cardiometabolic stress to your body, based on the basic gas syndrome, you know, ultimately you're going to, your body is going to need to adapt 
and therefore your performance is improved. By principle, you know, that's definitely, that's fine. That completely works. What you want to avoid, however, like I said, it comes down to, to the priorities of the type of endurance training session that you have. Don't forget, if with particularly with runners, if you have a session goal that you need to meet or target zone that you need to meet, and you got these runners, middle distance, long distance, and as a coach, you tell them, okay, let's you know, maintain a 430 pace or 420 pace. Okay. And you're maintaining a four, you ask them to maintain a 430 or 420 pace for you know half an hour, an hour, but they're not able to maintain that. What does that have in terms of the psychological aspect of training as an athlete? There's a psych, there are psychological ramifications of not being able to meet session goals because of the residual effects of fatigue from resistance training. So yeah, definitely there are some benefits. In, I think with this pre-fatigue approach that you're talking about, Phil, but you just, I think injuries have, athletes have to be cautious of when they implement that. Because like I said, if they're not able to meet session goals, target goals, that's then going to impact, it's going to have a psychological impact, okay? In terms of confidence, it's going to have impact on skill, so the pacing strategies may be altered. So if this, uh, that's going to be stuffed up potentially, um, particularly leading into a race. So you know you just have to make sure that if you are going to incorporate an endurance training session specifically and strategically where you're in a pre-fatigue stage or pre-fatigue state, you need to uh, know when and how you're doing. If you're uncertain of how you should be implementing that, then you know maybe it's best kind of to minimize that approach as much as, much as you can. Yeah, I think it's used for a specific reason and mats would be only once a week yeah. because any more than that, you are, you know, it's, it's a high fatiguing session. You know, the combination of the two, the Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the people often Absolutely. have off. So clearly they are focusing on that particular adaptation at that point of the week and they put it at that point of the week because they need that day off the next day because they need to recover from it. The, the, the overall stress from that is quite high. So in order to be able sure. to perform on Monday, <laughs> we need to make sure that there's a day in between. So it, it does seem yeah, yeah. rather calculated. And I guess you'd also have to be mindful of things like non-functional overreaching and overtraining as well. So, you know, there's also evidence to suggest that non-functional athletes exhibiting signs or symptoms of non-functional overreaching overtraining has actually impaired injurious development. So when we talk about impairment in training adaptations from a concurrent training perspective, it's usually not like a full impairment. It's a suboptimal adaptation. So if you've got, for example, a study where they look at a group of runners who just do running by itself, and a group that does concurrent training, so combination resistance and running sessions. And you might have a, a group that purely does resistance training. And then you are to do a running economy test as a baseline. So before the, the training program starts, and then eight weeks afterwards, you do a running economy test on those individuals again. You might find that if there is any potential interference occurring in that concurrent training, then what happens is they may have improved. But the magnitude of improvement of those injur that endurance group is much larger. It's a bit deceiving when we say impairment or compromise because people then have this preconceived notion that if you undertake concurrent training, then you're going to be worse than where you're when you started. It's not the case. It just means that the rate of improvement is not as good, and that's why I tend to like to use the word suboptimal. And you'll find that a lot of papers when that I published. I don't want to say a lot of papers, but the papers that I publish in concurrent training, you know, when I refer to the potential interference and its impact on training adaptation, it's suboptimal. Um, and you find that other concurrent training papers will also refer to that as well, because it's probably more of an accurate terminology to use um, from a scientific perspective, because ultimately it's not that you're worse than where you started. It's just that because of the combination of the two modes of exercise and the fact that they're not compatible with the type of training that they implemented, it's not as good as if they had done it by itself. 
Yeah, definitely. And that's what all the systematic reviews are exactly showing, especially when compared to endurance only groups. Like it's the comparison between concurrent exactly. training and endurance groups only is pretty huge. Yes, it's not the gap isn't as big as between strength group only and endurance group only, but the gap is still still pretty big. Like there's definitely I think suboptimal is the yeah. right word, but it's pretty good. I was really quite surprised. I mean, I was looking mm. at um a collection of it was a, from a chapter of a book a collection of studies and despite squat strength not increasing as much as the strength group only in this particular study the concurrent group as an average still increased their squat strength by 30 kilos and i, th- I th- i'm sure the, the 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 study was only like eight to 12 weeks long and like i would love to increase my squat strength mm. 30 kilos yeah. in that amount of time that yeah. would be amazing yeah. and that was still with endurance so so you know we're still there's still a lot of ability to improve i'd like to get your uh, opinion on say for example i'm going to do an iron man in the summer but i also want to train as a uh weightlifter Okay, so very competing sports. Based cool. on yeah. what we kind of talked about. So when you say, what, sorry, when you say weightlifter, as in like an Olympic weightlifting? Yeah, say, say that I, I, you know, I want to, over the course okay. of a year, I'd like to improve my scores in the clean and jerk and the snatch. But I also want to compete at a triathlon, you know, say an Ironman, let's say go, let's go longer in the summer. So I'd have to find a way of trying to balancing the two to try and improve slowly over time. What would your recommendations be? Because a, a, a lot of what you've already said are giving the information for coaches to make those decisions around when to push with in, uh, resistance training, when to push with the endurance side and how to manipulate within that a week. But thinking a bit more long term, what would what would your recommendations be? Yeah, that's such a good question. And, you know, it's a question that's often posed. And I guess as scientists in concurrent training, we've always, we're always limited to the findings that are reported in the literature. And I guess the big question is, so what happens long-term? Because the, I guess the limitations of a lot of these studies, including, you know, some of the studies that I've done, is it's either very acute which means it's an acute response, so within the week of training. And even if it's chronic training, chronic adaptations, and I'm using kind of quotes here, it's like eight to 10 weeks. So we don't, so you just said six months, for example, very few studies actually conduct concurrent training studies with longitudinal follow-ups for that long. And simply because of the logistical nightmare involved in conducting that kind of study. But I guess if you are, I mean, that's two extreme examples of having an athlete wanted to uh, compete uh, with weightlifting and uh, an Ironman. But it comes down to the priority of the mode of training, you know. So if you, you will incorporate a periodization cycle, and obviously as, depending on the order in which those competitions occur, it comes down to, you're almost like an endurance athlete preparing for, or you are actually an endurance athlete preparing for an Ironman, and then you're all a power athlete preparing for Olympic weightlifting, such as a clean and jerk. So if you are an endurance athlete preparing for an Ironman with the, uh, I guess, intention that later on you're going to be preparing for Olympic weightlifting, then you will be focusing primarily on endurance training. Like I said, the resistance training exercises will supplement that endurance training. So there's, there should really should be minimal situations in which resi- your resistance training program is in fact interfering on your endurance training session. Other than those situations where you know, you're implementing the pre-fatigue approach, like you said earlier, Phil, where you know, you're deliberately inducing fatigue leading into your endurance training session, but you, you probably won't be doing that very often anyways. So as a whole, generally, when you're preparing for a long-distance event, resistance training should be, should be more of a supplement to your endurance training program. And then that's switched around. So if you're preparing for an Olympic lifting event, then you know your sole focus is uh, weightlifting. But the thing is, if you know that you know, you're on an yearly basis, you're going to be competing at 
two types of events, you don't want to lose your injurious adaptation. You know, so if you are preparing for uh, an Olympic lifting event, there's a much stronger focus on power-based exercises, uh, like strength-based exercises, and your endurance training exercises should be supplemented, but not should be interfering with one, the quality of those resistance and Olympic-type training sessions. And two, what I would probably suggest during that period is to up the intensity of endurance session. I know it sounds a bit crazy, but that's actually, there's more evidence coming out with concurrent training where high-intensity endurance is probably more compatible than low-intensity, long, greater volume of endurance. Um, so cardio acceleration time exercises where you are incorporating high-intensity endurance in between your resistance training sets, or you kind of incorporating more of like a high-intensity intermittent type endurance exercises, or you might be doing a functional HIIT training where you are incorporating high volume resist circuit-based resistance exercises that induces cardiometabolic stress that will assist you in maintaining your VO2 max or your uh, running economy or economy of movement. So it's basically endurance capacity or aerobic capacity, but through resistance training means. But yes, yeah, so that would be like my, I guess, general advice. I mean, we can really get into the nitty-gritty, but again, that would be more situation-based as well. But yeah, if you are trying to prepare for both, if you got if you're focusing on RMN, your resistance training should be supplemented, no different to how an endurance athlete would treat resistance training for the entire year if their periodization is biphasic, so they might have two peaks. But if you are if yours is biphasic as well, where you've got a peak in the middle of the year that you're preparing for an Ironman and a peak at the end of the year where you're preparing for an Olympic lifting event, the first six months you're focusing on endurance adaptations with by while supplementing the resistance training. And then once you complete the Ironman competition, then you know sw- swapped around. And it's probably easier to uh, regain those strength capabilities after that kind of that mesocycles of endurance training. While when you when you get back into starting your resistance training exercises, but during that those mesocycles in preparation for Olympic lifting, and if, if it's important for you to be able to maintain your aerobic capacity, do so by incorporating probably more higher intensity endurance exercises because it seems to have lower interference effects between those two modes of training sessions kenji that's absolutely perfect and makes it translates to a lot of what other coaches have said around it's almost like you've got two dials endurance and strength and then when you might need to slightly focus a little bit more on the strength side you just turn the dial slightly for the strength side and then you slightly turn it down so you're not turning them off but you're just turning turning one up slightly one down slightly and then it kind of flips when you need to focus on the other one. Um, so you, you're training concurrently. But it's not quite, I don't know, I don't want to call it blocked, but it just means that certain ones have certain emphasis at certain times. Um, and yeah, that's exactly what you... I think um, strength and conditioning coaches kind of, you know, there's a, it's easy to kind of forget that. So it's so easy to implement you know, too much resistance training volume for an endurance athlete when the endurance athlete doesn't need that much resistance training. And you'll often see that if a strength and conditioning coach who's coming from a strength power background tries to incorporate a resistance training program with the running coach or an endurance coach. Um, and, you know, what happens is the endurance athlete gets totally depleted and they actually do experience, you know, signs and symptoms of non-functional overreaching will potentially leading into overtraining for that reason like kenji that was awesome i learned so much there especially around all the mechanisms and how we need to try and balance them and how it's a, a nightmare but actually quite a fun piece of work to do it's like art but um how can anyone that wants to read your work or get in contact how can people find you just email me kenji.doma jc.edu.au um, i've got a twitter account as well and if they're interested in reading any of my papers, then they can contact me. I can provide them with the pre-printed version, which is the one kind of the, a manuscript that was accepted for publication, uh, but it's not the actual printed version. But the words are all the same. It just doesn't look as pretty. Um, 
but yeah, no, nah, they can contact me and let me know if they want to chat. No, definitely. And we'll put all of your links to your work in our show notes so anyone can access them. But Kenji, thank you so much. That was brilliant. <laughs>